welcome to Man of the World, a podcast about being a man that works, plays, reads, thinks and wears watches in today's world. I'm Nick Harding and this is... Neil Levine is here too. All day, every day. Yeah. Um, right, let's, let's start with something that is um, a splinter in your mind. You've just, you've just done something with your uh, Aura 65 <laughs> and you're both delighted and infuriated. Talk us through that. Yeah, the Oris 65, which is, uh, you can get with several options on the bracelet. You can get the tropical strap or you can get a canvas strap. I got mine because I yearned for the tropical strap and I've just taken a step that's, I can't go back to that. Uh, I wanted to get the bracelet for it just because I like the look of it. Found out that the Oris bracelet is $600. Which which is insane. $600 to buy. I can't find one secondhand or pre-owned. So I've found out on the forums that the Explorer 2 bracelet fits exactly. Whereas that, it's 98% fit. It's a decent fit. Well, from my point of view, it's, it's almost perfect. And you would literally have to go out of your way to have someone say hey, look at this, it doesn't fit perfectly for you to actually notice it because I'm looking at it now and um, that's pretty much as perfect as you can possibly get. I take but, solace from that. It's, but... <laughs> it's quantum of solace. <laughs> <laughs> However, you can't go back. There's no way to get the uh, spring bar tool in to change it out. So the only <laughs> way to get that bracelet off, and it does look really good, but now I can't go back to the tropical strap. So, all right. So this Oris, it doesn't have um, holes in, in the in the lugs. Yeah. In the lugs, so you can't get it out that way. You you literally can't get the spring bar in there, uh, the spring bar tool in there. So, did when you were putting it in, were you thinking how will I get this out, or were you just thinking I've heard that this Rolex uh, fits it, and I'm yeah, I, I wasn't thinking how to get it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was just uh, and then the way I normally get. The bracelets back on is to get the top bit of the spring bar balanced right on the lug and then pop the bottom one in it's always tricky and it didn't occur to me to think there's no gap there to get the spring bar tool in to get it out again so it's in it's in it's kind of funny because it it looks it looks as though it's a match made in heaven. It, it fits super well, and you've got this really nice juxtaposition between um, the dial itself, which is mm. very, very sporty and quite quirky because of the um, 12.6. The Mondo. The yeah, Mondo, the, the uh, Mondo style. So, so it's got this nice juxtaposition between you know sporty and classy. It looks as though it fits perfectly. It's fantastic. But the thing which ticked you off is the fact that now that you don't have you don't seemingly don't have an option to yeah it's like being told not to do something uh i immediately want to go against that uh the, i can't ever go back to the tropical well, strap could, but i'll use it on the explorer too could you reckon could you like i mean yeah I'd, okay yeah. if you if you had to get this um bracelet off the oris you could literally wrench it yeah, out that would... you'd break the spring bars and possibly scratch up some stuff but mm. but it's it's doable it is doable but it's it's making a decision for me and yeah it's hard to define it's the fact that uh it, it's i can't swap things out on that ever whereas i'd reached the 
I'd gotten over, over the novelty of the tro- tropical strap. I'd, I dove with it a few, four or five times. Um, because it's a thinner profile, it's really a, a skin diver watch as in it's nice on the skin and the tropical sort of coral reef uh, and the water's warm enough just to be wearing board shorts. It's that sort of watch. And when I dive, I dive with a wetsuit and I feel a bit more secure with the Seiko Turtle which has a, a, there's a sturdiness to it that in this, it's more your, yeah, the 1965 skin and it, dive. It, it looks like that. I mean, my, um, I'm not actually quite sure what year it is. I think it's 1968, but my skin diver from that oh, era, yeah, the which is the pre-show uh, yeah. uh, Aqualung, um, Aquaguard, what's interesting about that is I've, I have it on this really beautiful um dark brown buffalo strap and it looks uh, fantastic and it's wonderful but often i'll jump through um instagram and i'll be looking for that particular look so mine has a steel bezel so uh steel bezel kind of black uh relatively glossy dial and so i look for that particular watch and then to see what people oh, look, yeah, what see, people yeah. wear with it and uh invariably they go for the, you know, the tropic strap. Oh, yeah. And it looks brilliant. Yeah. It looks brilliant every time. I think it's because it's, um, I might be superimposing the idea that it does look good because I know that it's kind of um, heritage mm. um, consistent. But I think it does genuinely actually look the best that you could possibly Yeah, it's do. definitely of that time. Whereas, uh, and I, I've got one skin diver and looking to buy others of that time. I, I think it's a nice niche to collect and it's still relatively affordable, particularly for a retro watch guy uh, and guys like that. Um, but for the Aura 65, I mean, I feel at home with a bracelet anyway. So well, it's funny. There's a, I'm looking at a picture now by, well, actually, you'll probably find it rather difficult to find except to say it's a... It's oh, a James, James Stacy's one, yeah, the Devosa. Yeah, is it Devosa no, or? that's the Silvana. Silvana, yeah, and it's it's an absolute winner. So the watch looks virtually identical to my show except mm. he's got it on a mesh, and um, damn, it it looks fantastic. It's it's obviously super sporty, mm. but just that sheer amount of kind of steel on there gives it that impression that actually that's that's kind of classy that at the same that time. Works well. He so, bought that in similar conditions. I don't think it was Retro Watch Guy, but a similar seller, that 10 past 10 or 20 past 10, 1021 seller out of New York. Um, yeah, it represents the affordable end of the, the uh, skin diver sort of collection habit. They're very nice watches. I've got a question for you. A little, little bit random, but I'm I'm now looking at a another skin diver. This one's a Satina um, hashtag vintage diver. Um, has uh, it's called Satina Quartz PH one hundred M. But the question I wanted to ask was, um, what do you reckon about wearing stuff on the side? Kind of you know bangles, wraparounds, beads, kind of those you know. You know what would Jesus do style kind of yeah. bracelets on the side, which kind of um, complement the watch. Do you do that? If so, why? Why not? What What do you think about yeah. the look? I I don't do it. I I I think it it works. But some people it just seems to work quite well. Um, 
it's not something... I, I wear the watch, I think, to achieve the same end in a way, that uh, that, that is my piece of adornment. Uh, but uh, some people you see wearing them and it works quite well. I, I tend to think, too, my reflex action, I guess, or reflex response is that is a generation uh, yeah. Y, is it? I think it's generation so just, Y. So I'm 41. How old are you? 45. Okay, so... Said set with a sigh. Said with a sigh. <laughs> so at, at that age where it's kind of like, you know, you're um, uh, young enough to still be kind of, you know, flexible in your thinking, but you're kind of old enough to have that experience, etc., mm. etc. But I just feel as though there's some stuff I can't get away with. Like I've recently finished up with a, a corporate training company and the the managing director, the CEO, the guy who's the, uh, the big cheese... Um, wears this beautiful tag, and I'm not actually a massive fan of tags, but it's mm. it's a it's a beautiful watch, uh, all kind of you know platinum white esque. But he always has this um, this kind of rubber wrap around. It's got a whole bunch of writing on it. It might be religious because he's a Catholic, but it's oh. got but you, you couldn't notice that. But it kind of buttresses up against the watch, and it looks absolutely fantastic. Well, it does work. Uh, yeah, so and he wears. Like he wears midnight blue jeans and he wears a midnight blue um, shirt. It's always kind of tucked in. He looks slick and schmick, but a little bit relaxed. And then he's kind of he's rolled the um, uh, the you know, the sleeve up. And he's a he's a cyclist. So even though he's about um, forty nine, he's got a really kind of lean and mean, you know, Wolverine style body. So oh. so the watch looks fantastic with that adornment. So I don't think it's an age thing, but I think it's a style thing. He can get away with that. I just don't think I can. Mm. I think I dress younger than I am, but if I was to put on some type of kind of, you know, beads around one of my watches, I just it, it would I would feel try hard. There's too many too many eggs in the cake. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the saying. Overegging your pudding. Overegging the pudding. Mm. Uh, the wooden beads. I would worry about noise. You can't go stealth mode. I suppose. <laughs> I've seen guys wear metal. Charms and things uh, like that, and I'd uh, worry about uh, the I, ha- I have the a metal. metal. I have a metal charm. I bought it in. So I did a um, did an archaeological sites tour of um, essentially the Middle East of um, Turkey, Greece, and Rome. Uh, but we spent the vast majority of time in Turkey. Um, and so I bought a bunch of mementos. One of which was a metal charm bracelet, and it's got tiny. It's it's all silver, and it has these tiny red crosses on it. Um, almost like a Maltese cross, so not like a... Oh, it's a Christian thing, but it doesn't look like a T. It looks yeah. like a, a plus sign. It, look, it looks fantastic. However, I put it on and put it next to my watch, and it looks great, but it's metal on metal. I'm like, you, yeah, you forget about it. Yeah, That's, I'm not going to do that. Also, I'm not going to put a like a little a red string, kind of that Kabbalah-esque style oh, thing yeah, next yeah. to it. I, I get the point, and there's... What's that girl on Instagram, Rockstar Watches? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. She wears lots and lots of stuff, yeah. and it looks awesome, but it's also a bit kind of bohemian. And it, it I don't think that yeah. doesn't, doesn't... I'm not a surfer. I'm not a hipster. I'm not particularly cool. I'm not particularly conservative, mm. but I just think I, I would feel a bit inauthentic. Mm. She she rocks it to yeah. use it because she, is, mm. she plays guitar in a in a rock band, but is a psychologist. And oh. that's the day job. Boom. Love your work. Um, a little bit of juxtaposition. Yeah. Uh, 
and has a prodigious collection. Yes, and uh, of of all sorts of brands. Also, explore it too. But yeah, we uh, divert a bit. Um, it's a look that I it, I don't get judgmental about, but I couldn't mm. do it myself. Here's another question: uh, When it comes to to looks and kind of accessorizing stuff, what do you reckon about watches that are etched? And, and I'm thinking about this. I'm looking looking at the the show notes, and in a moment we're going to have a chat about Neil's um, Magretta. Oh yes, Magretta. But the Magretta. Um, they do the, a special edition. Yeah, there's, there's a guy in New Zealand, and there's a guy in I don't know. Let's call it Texas, who etch Magrettas, mm. and they they look absolutely fantastic. They they tend the etching tends to be very very um, uh, Maori, yeah, very yeah. kind of um, Islander because of the because of its heritage. It's from New Zealand, but I think it looks absolutely awesome. It, for the first time, I, I I'd agree with you on that. They they do look good. I think it's because of the Maori ethos and it's in keeping with their, yeah. their where they're from, it, it works really well. I've seen Rolex cases done in the same way and it's I personally just find it a bit... It's like seeing a Rolex bedecked in jewels. Yes. It's just a I, bit that, silly. It, yeah. But I, yeah, I think it's over the top. It's yeah. like, you know, when you see... You see like a Porsche 911 and then the... Um, uh, the the number plate will be something like, um, <laughs> you know, rich guy. Yeah, you think, yeah, whoa, 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 did, did you just, you just took a, a thing of beauty. Engineering beauty. And, and you're a smart ass about it? What, and, are you kidding me? And also a practical car. I mean, a car built to really drive in a sportsman-like, or sports-person-like way. It's mm. engineered to that end. And I kind of, I look at that and I think, all right, it's really problematic that oftentimes the only people who can afford a Rolex or uh, let's let's call it a Rolex Submariner or a Porsche 911, they're both tools. One's a tool watch, one's a tool car you should mm. use as a tool. It's unfortunate the only people, because of their reputation and price, that can afford these are people who actually um, don't go diving or don't yeah, they, go hardcore driving on yeah. the track. So it's delightful when you see someone treat it like an everyday tool. However... I, I want to see a, a Porsche 911 with roof racks and maybe a set of skis. Yeah, I've seen. Yeah, that's badass. Or I yeah. want to see someone with a, a Rolex and they're kind of they're they're wearing it and you're like, you know what? You're comfortable with this because it's dinged about because you've literally hit it on the side of um, uh, a boat when you've jumped out of it. I yeah. love that. But by the same token, if you kind of then put a uh, a bumper sticker on it. That says, you know, I voted Hillary. It's like, what are you doing? It's, Just come on, mate. Yeah, it's a, it's a. These things, unfortunately, they gain their reputation when people could afford them, and the the, the prices they go for now, and their recommended retail price has become uh, something that <laughs> people of questionable taste have taken on. So oh. let's talk about what we've been up to mm. recently. Nick, you went to to Melbourne recently. Yeah, I did. I um and I won't go into too much detail on this. This was a business. This this is a business thing. I um so I, I got myself a job in corporate training, so looking at leadership, design thinking, communication, that type of stuff. Brilliant uh, company in Sydney. They're based in Sydney, but they've got offices in Brisbane and Melbourne. Been uh, been going for twenty one years, do exceptionally well in the market. Um 
I had an eye on this company for a couple of years oh. and I had kind of interviewed a few people who worked there. I kind of, I really was um, kind of a little bit like, you know, they were, they were my corporate crush. So I finally got myself an opportunity to work for them, did the audition, knocked out of the ballpark, got a job. But within three weeks, I just thought, you know what, this job's perfect on paper, but it's not rocking my world. Uh, but I didn't make a decision based on that. I thought, yeah. oh, that's a bit weird. Just ignore that. Keep crunching on. Mm. And about three months, I thought, you know what, I, I'm really struggling, which is weird because I'm kind of purpose-built for this job. And it's, a per, again, perfect on paper, but it wasn't really rocking my world. Right. At five and a half months, I had this epiphany when I was in one of uh, Australia's, what we call our big four, one of our big four banks, uh, 7.35am, um, prepping the day, getting everything set up, and I just had this absolute blinding moment of clarity where I thought, I don't want to do this. Oh, yes. And, and, and it's my, funny how those moments loom, well, they don't loom, yeah, they burst they, upon they, you. They burst upon you, and, and my brain is like, whoa, Nick, you've been looking forward to this job for two yeah. years. Uh, you love your boss, you love the company, you love the IP, you love the people you meet. I've got to meet some real movers and shakers in the Australian corporate landscape. Um, it's great for my bank balance, mm. but my heart just went, yeah, I don't want to do this. So come... Well, you've, you've got to listen to that. Yeah, and, and, and I did. And I'll be honest, 10 years ago at 32, I wouldn't have. I would have said, suck it up. Yeah. But now I'm like... Carpe diem, like life's too short. I literally don't have time to be doing something that I'm not juiced up about. Yeah. So, come the the sixth month, um, you know, stage of the kind of the probation. It was a six month period. Sat down with the boss. We had a conversation, and to steal Gwyneth Paltrow's phrase, we uh, decided to consciously uncouple, and um, <laughs> and then moved on. But here's the, here's the key. Here's the reason I tell you this story. When it happened, because I'm not uh, a 22-year-old hothead or a 32-year-old, um, you know, ambitious young man looking to kind of railroad anyone like a juggernaut to get where I need to be, mm. I was able to kind of go, you know what? I don't know why this doesn't work. It doesn't work, and I'm not burning bridges. So I didn't, and we, we I ended up, you know, having an exit interview. It was super delightful you know and we just it was really kind of mature and impressive Mm. and upbeat then surprise surprise um about two months later they said oh listen can you swing by and and do a gig for us which means they fly me to melbourne i do a gig i get paid a very nice sum of money and then Mm. i get flown back and it's and it's basically all care no responsibility i get to you know have this adventure of flying to Melbourne, hanging out with the old gang, doing this uh, corporate gig for 200 people, which is really, um, that, that juices me up. I really, yeah. I didn't, I don't want to do it full time, but I like to do it sporadically. Have a great time, get flown back, a real adventure. And I thought... That could be the way to go, the, like more consultancy. Yeah. Is that what they mean when, see, I, I don't uh, run in these circles. That is that what they mean by consultancy? Or? Yeah, I think, well, for, for them... They, one of the reasons they're so hyper successful is because um, they are very consistent. Um, if you, like McDonald's, you know, one taste worldwide. If you get a person from this company, whether they come from Brisbane or Melbourne or Sydney, whether they've been there 10 years or two years, the standard will be exemplary and 
it does what it does on the tin yeah. and pe- people love it. Now that for me didn't really rock my world. I'm kind of a little more individual slash you know, maybe rebellious, maybe you know, don't play well with others, but uh, that didn't really work with my sense of kind of autonomy and, and what I want to do in the marketplace. Yeah. So we, I went off and did my thing, but what I like about that story um, and the fact that, you know, this trip to Melbourne is just the first of many yeah. is that it's an absolute win-win. It's a win for me. Put yeah. some money in my back pocket. It's a win for them. They know that um, if they don't have enough staff or for whatever reason, there's a bit of a kind of, you know, a, a, an employee numbers bottleneck. Mm. They can they can pass the ball to me and I can pick the ball up and run with it. And so it's an absolute win-win. But it that rested on the pivot of when when we decided to uncouple and go our separate ways there was no there was no childish petulant yeah you know, so that's the, throwing the toys out of the pram that sounds like the the moral of the story is mm. you know the i can't say i did the same thing when i got out of my last big job uh teaching uh that Have, was it having said that i tell you what i, I read an article once that said it, it was about things you have to do once and one of the things was you have to quit a job by essentially telling people to f off. Like there has to be, you know, like speak you, your mind, like, like literally stand up on a desk and yeah. just go. You can all get stuffed and, yeah. and burn your bridge to the absolute ground and then just piss on the ashes. Um, but you've got to do that once. Just it's almost like walking away. You should walk away from all fights because yeah. we're not animals. Yeah, but we're, we're, but we're, there's centuries of developmental history where we should be civilized yeah but i don't think you should probably walk away from your first fight or a fight where you're protecting your part like there's at least at least one time where you need to stand up and go actually you know what no i'm going to use my fisticuffs because um it's it's a little bit brash and bold but what would sean connery do yes exactly but but in this case though in this case you you kept things yeah, cool, cool, calm, and collected, and now um, they're using me to do a little bit of contract work, and it's an absolute win-win, and um, I'm delighted about that. So went went to Melbourne, which if you're not from Australia, kind of um, Melbourne is a little bit, I suppose, like say Portland, Oregon in America. It's it's a little bit kind of like Berlin in uh, Germany. It's kind of it, it's it's and it's increasingly though. It's cool. That's where head office is now. Yeah. Uh, Sydney is losing its crown. It's luster. Yeah. You mentioned you've been on a bit of a dive recently. Oh yeah, I went. I went diving as is my want. I went diving and bench tested or or submerged tested my new Magrette, uh, which we were talking about before. The Moana Pacific uh, dive watch. Uh, Magretta, a, a micro brand out of New Zealand. I'd backed one of their watches, or when they were bringing out the new model of the Moana Pacific, I put some money down and then uh, happily received it. It's to describe them, they have a Panerai esque case, that sort of cushion case. Um, quite reasonable diameter of 42 millimetres. I think the largest one is 44. 
which would be too big for me. I think 42 for a dive watch is a nice sweet spot. Uh, they have a distinctive look in that their numerical indices are uh, in 24-hour time, um, a sort of 0, 0, 0, 0, 3, 0, 6, 0, 9. I've got I to be honest, the first time I saw that, I just went, I don't like that, that's weird. Mm. And then the more I looked at it, I thought, well, hang about. I, I don't like that simply because it's not the usual... It's different. You know, 12, 3, 6, 9. But when you look at it, you go, well... It's now all balanced. So north, south, yeah, east, it's west. it's all double digit. All has double digits. And yeah. so once, once you get that, that balance, and because it's quite a, a, a big watch, mm. they just totally get away with it. There's a symmetry there. And I chose to go without a date, which I'm doing. I think that's when you know you're beginning to become a bit of a watch nut, is that you choose the non-date option um, because the date can upset the symmetry, which for a dive watch, I don't... Yeah, a date on it is a bit... Um, uh, if you have a dedicated dive watch, you can do without the date. But I see the need for a date, so I don't want to start an argument. But yeah, the McCready underwater is fantastic. The bezel, as it comes from the factory, is a little bit on the stiff side. It takes a little bit of heft. A little bit on the stiff? Yeah, oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's quite... It's a burly... And it's starting to... If you could compare it now to when I got it out of the box, it is there. There is a, It's not as stiff as it used to be, so I'm sure it's wearing in. But yeah, it's not the lightest bezel to turn around. But as a dive watch, it's. But not on my only criticism of it is, uh, and I I went uh, to to talk about the diving aspect. I took it down to about thirty meters or a hundred feet, and of course it. I mean, the way these, you get dress watches that are 100 metres water resistant now, so it's not so much the water resistance is the, the issue, it's more how legible is it. If I look at it very quickly, and when you're looking at it underwater, you're not there, you know, not there for a long time, you're there for a good time, you want to look at it quickly and get the information you want. Um, it's very legible underwater mm. the color scheme of it that sort of matte dark very light black dark gray but a matte finish with yellow in the bezel and the and the indices it's very legible underwater uh, my criticism of it is it's a it's got a great rubber strap but not a very good uh, deployment deployment clasp clasp it's it's great it's over engineered it's a beautiful deployment clasp if you're above water and if you're wearing it on your wrist and size to your wrist and then you've got to put it on the outside of a wetsuit you need about 20 minutes it's very fiddly uh that is my criticism beautiful deployment uh, clasp but in terms of a dive, and i want to use the rubber strap but i just want i wish they would just put a normal buckle on these things you you want a rubber strap to be quick to employ you you want to use it and resize it on the outside of a wetsuit quickly and if you're diving in skin diver mode if if the diameter of your wrists change and they do in in temperature fluctuations it depends on the amount of water you've drunk um, your wrist moves by millimeter increments you want to resize it quickly and the deployment 
clasp and it looks brilliant it's got a fantastic little head logo etched onto it with infinite skill just can't use it mm. in but a, a positive to that it comes with a blue zulu strap or gray depending on your um, sort of degree of color blindness uh, it comes with a great utilitarian uh, zulu strap you can thread it in there easily and i use it on that and was very happy with the results so yeah i was quite happy with that dive using that went diving down at shell harbour down at bush rangers bay where there was a bit of sediment in the water so visibility was an issue uh, and i use a dive watch i'm contrary to those that say a dive watch is redundant and is not used i use a backup system uh, and I, I subscribe to that idea that yes I have a dive computer if there's any variable you can't operate a dive computer underwater it's impossible with any model I dare say once there's something that has changed in in your plan and I know they say plan your dive dive your plan but things do change you can't change your dive computer it's set and off you go uh, you can change the bezel on a dive watch. So I use it as a functional backup system and have relied on it a couple of times. Now, uh, let's, let's take a step back from kind of um, watches in their most super practical sense. You, um, you went to was it the Sydney uh, yes. Watch Meetup the other day. Kind of, it's our, I suppose it's a micro version of the old um, uh, Red Bar, Bar Meetups yeah. where everyone gets to... No, I believe there's one in Melbourne now. I was talking oh, to a bloke who nice. said that would be Melbourne, as you found out on your trip. You you went down there what early morning? Yeah, I mean, no, normally with that particular company, which I'm kind of going out of my way not to to mention because it's you know it's a, it's a watch podcast and you know, um, but yet yeah, they tend to send you the night before. So if you have got a gig on Tuesday morning in yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. That um, that send you there on Monday night, so you could kind of you know go to a hotel, get up because I mean you're getting charged out at a at an amount which um is going to really make the uh, the accounts team kind of a, a bit of this response. So um yeah. so you 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 got to make sure that you you get there fresh and ready to rumble. But that particular day it was a fairly big gig, um and so we were moving uh, a stack of people uh, all the way to Melbourne and then back. It it's funny it's. It's like an hour fifteen flight. It's mm. not particularly long, but by the time you kind of you know go through all the rigmarole of actually getting on a plane, um, it's just it's a it's a little bit painful. Which which kind of makes me I remember when I first heard about um, uh, Elon Musk's idea of the hyperloop. My brain didn't get it, but now I just go, yep, boom, get it. Like why on earth are what, we going? Uh, you yeah. Can you explain? Oh, the I mean, I, I don't know very much about it except to say it's essentially um, a big tube, and a person is in. You know those kind of um, you know those old school uh, rail carts. So so they're on a uh, a railway track, and mm. you've got a person either side, and they kind of push up and push oh, yeah, down. Yeah. So so think of it like that size. Um, but it's encased and the person is in there and then it runs by, I, I suspect it's kind of magnets yeah. and you kind of, you know, you get pulled forward. Feel free to tell me I'm scientifically all over the shop. But in a nutshell, you get in this little essentially rail car and mm. you absolutely fang it from one plane oh, to another. Speed. And yeah. the thing with Australia, which is really odd, is that 98% of the Australian population 
lives on the ribbon on the outside. Mm. So everyone lives on the coast. No one lives in the middle. And I say this having... Um, it's been in the middle for a bit. Yeah, yeah, spent a year living in the middle. No mm. one lives there. Everyone lives on the coast. But, you know, there's that, that saying that um, if, you're, if you're in Europe, you kind of hop on a plane and then within two hours, you've gone through 27 countries. <laughs> in Australia, you can get on a, a plane in Sydney, fall asleep, wake up, and still you, the same you're state. still in the same state. It's a, it's a farce. In fact, the, the song Great Southern Land by Icehouse was written by the lead singer Ifa Davies because he he was catching a plane to Perth and he was going over the Nullarbor, which is a this kind of massive, for lack of a better word, desert. Stretch of nothing. Stretch of nothing. And uh, he looked out and he goes, oh, the Nullarbor, went to sleep two hours, woke up later, looked out the window, oh, look, the Nullarbor. <laughs> and it just popped into his head. It's like, when they say, and our nickname is Great Southern Land, he's like, yeah, it, it yeah. really is great. It's absolutely mind-shrillingly massive. And we don't have high-speed rail. But we don't, we don't have the Hyperloop oh, yet. No one does. But more importantly, we don't have high-speed high bullet trains. Like, we're a stone's throw from Japan. We're super close. They are essentially our neighbours. Well, um, a seven-hour stone throw. Well, it's a big, a big throw yeah. um, on a Hyperloop. But two re- relatively close. But uh, they've had bullet trains for 40 years, and these, these things clock 200 kilometres an hour, and then and come the re- back to Australia. And up to 300. Yeah, and we're... we're tooling around with planes. <laughs> yeah. You think, well, that's dumb. Yeah, it's lunacy that we we don't have a high speed high speed rail links. But no, no, let's we've we've lost a we've we've digressed. My the point of my story was, uh, and you went to Melbourne in the morning. Yeah, you did did the business, did, did the, the job, came back in the evening. Or, yeah, yeah, it's quite doable. We're, our red bar event in Melbourne. Is quite doable. I, I'd like to uh, put out there, record an episode on, down there for a weekend on the on a on a red bar event. Uh, is quite achievable. Anyway, the AWBSS meetup. It's a Facebook group that stands for the Australian Watch Buy, Swap and Sell uh, group. Goes by. Um, I, with some trepidation, accepted an invitation to a, a meetup. Uh, paid a small amount of money just to cover nibblies and things like that. Like which, twenty bucks. Twenty bucks. Yep. Uh, which is and for the guy putting it on, uh, the guy who puts it on, Chris Essery, uh, he works out out of Perth. He buys and sells both new and vintage watches. Uh, the name of his company is Horology House. Deals with your higher end stock, which is why I went there with some trepidation. Um, and it, I wasn't disappointed. Uh, oh, very nice guys. Uh, I wasn't trepidatious because let, of that. Let, let me guess, Daytona Central? <laughs> yeah, lots of Daytonas, uh, four or five of them. Uh, it was Rolex heavy, the, the whole meeting. Uh, which was interesting because it's great to see these things in the flesh and not in the pressurised confines of a boutique where you've got the salesman there looming over your shoulder. And I know they say if the salesman is there giving you a hard time, go to another boutique, but in Sydney it's not as easy as that. But it, we went to a, a nice restaurant in Pitt Street in Sydney 
they have an un, a downstairs bar that the only trouble, it was a great room, great bar, but the lighting was a little iffy. But everyone's got a flashlight app on their mobile phone now, so we overcame that. Uh, three or four tables lined up with uh, watches of all sorts, mostly Rolex uh, sports watches with lots of Daytonas. What, what were you wearing? Uh, I wore my EXP2, my, my Rolex Explorer 2. It's, as, and I was, as I was saying to another fellow there, it's only recently become my daily wear with a, uh, with a, a strap change out that's really taken my fancy. Normally I wear the Explorer 1. Uh, and a fellow was there that was wearing an Explorer 1. And I said, ah, that's my normally daily wear. Uh, and there were fellows there that, you know, had the Chinese seagull movement chronographs just there as aficionados and had watches. It, it's a, I, I felt sorry in their embarrassment over them because me being a true watch guy, I had questions to ask about these, the, the Chinese <laughs> yeah. military chronographs about, oh, how's that work and how's it wear and is it, is it worth the money you paid, i.e. not much, mm. and that's good because watches are overpriced. Like, I, yeah, I feel as if someone rocks up with a, a Vostok Amphibia, I, yeah. I want to check that out. Yeah, you I wanna... want to check that out. I want to have a look at it. Yeah. I want to see, you know, I mean, can you get, like, do the Russians make good watches? Let's not forget that watch did go to space. It's not yeah. just kind of, it's not all about the uh, the Seiko Pogue or the, um, the Speedmaster, but the Amphibia went up into space as well. But I like to have a look at it because you can get those puppies for like 97 bucks. Yeah, and, and they're like the SKX, they're solid pieces and yeah. you you with someone in, in in an interest in watches you you want to one guy there had a um what rolex day date he was wearing two watches yeah two watches he had the rose gold rolex on one wrist which was getting a lot of attention and on the other and it wasn't getting much attention was a, a royal oak um and i just was i said to him a few times i said you know the bit more interesting watch there don't you and I think he realized that the horology interested people were mm. interested in the Royal Oak uh, much for its rarity I think mm. uh, like you, you mentioned the the seagull um, one of the problems with that you know, with, with the internet is that it, it's a little bit like a little bit like uh, Pretty Girls. I watched this thing once where uh, Tara Banks runs this, you know, TV show called Runway or something. I, I don't know, but I, I caught one episode once. And to be honest, it was fairly fascinating because she was saying that there's a massive difference between girls who are pretty in real life and girls who are pretty in a photo. And she said, as as a female and as an ex or current model, um, she frequently walks down the street and will see a girl who's particularly pretty and will say to her, hey, you know, I'm Tyra Banks, I think you're gorgeous, um, come with me to a, a modelling, you know, uh, agency. So yeah. they literally walk into this thing, the person gets their photos taken and then when they see the photos, they go, no. Nah. And she said, in... in right, model, it doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't translate. translate. And she said, in model world, there's a, a difference between photo pretty and street pretty. Street pretty yeah. And she said, she personally will see girls who on the street are prettier than she is but if you were to take photos of both of them and compare them you'd choose her right. every day right. i say that because the uh 
the that, Japanese. That must be, I think that applies to me. Yeah, absolutely. Think, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm breathtakingly good looking on the internet on the... and better in real life. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you look at the Chinese um, seagull and yeah. it it looks like a nice watch, but you see it up close and you realise when they say it's a champagne dial, it's it's literally the colour of champagne. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful watch. And if they were better at marketing, they probably would have got all the new old stock, sequestered them away like mm. De Beers have done with diamonds, and then just slowly kind of released a few each year and said yeah. basically they're a $2,000 watch. Yeah. And people would have gone, I'll pay that. You don't know, they... They may be good at marketing, and it's a, it's a, a two dollar watch, and they've been selling <laughs> yeah. for three hundred. But but it, they reports are they're very sturdy and reliable, which which you tend to want, don't particularly in a chronograph, which are difficult to get. And that would be your problem, you with a seagull movement. I gather they'd be easy to work on relatively. You've still got to pay for that work to be done, and you'd be paying more than the value of the watch yeah. in the service. I'm just taking a photo of a man in a boat. Ah, uh, yes. From Malaysia. <laughs> it was on my windowsill. Because yes, as it moved anywhere, it's quite ironical. It's kind of like you're in a boat. You're going nowhere. Going nowhere. Mm, mm. Is, it, is that a metaphor for your life, Neil? <laughs> yeah, the, the art, though. The <laughs> art. This is my fifth drink. <laughs> the, art, the art follows me everywhere. It is I, what I do. I'm, I'm, um, I'm traveling in my glass canoe, which, of course, for the non-Australians. What have you? What have you? What's, uh, what's your particular flavour? This afternoon. <laughs> well, I just finished a uh, a Galway port. Ah. it's my second one. Um. I think yeah, I'm a, on to my second Jameson. I um I enjoy I enjoy port. It's one of those you know like every every boy looks up up to his father and for some bizarre reason I don't know why but Dad was always a teetotaler so we just never drank alcohol. Um, not religious or ethical reasons mm-hmm. for that. Just kind of wasn't his thing. Yeah. Mum would have half a glass of wine and would literally fall asleep at the the table. And I've seen her do that twice and oh. in. 40 years so it's yeah. kind of she literally never consumes alcohol dad uh and, and his only thing ever would be um he wouldn't even have a, a beer at a barbecue is just you know a glass of port once in a blue moon at say you know nine thirty at night once mm-hmm. once the uh the old dinner has started to you know um is all finished so we've got to look to the previous generation it skips a generation for your desire and love of alcohol We've got to look to your grandparents' generation. and What's well, funny, my, my alcohol journey, I, I always viewed alcohol as an enhancer. Like it just, whatever mood you were in, if you wanted to enhance the mood or kind of short-circuit it and get into a better mood, mm. you'd have a drink. Um, so not, I, not to drink for flavour, but for effect. Oh, yeah, no, maybe. I mean, I, I would never do the whole, like, you know, oh, I need a heart starter before I go on a date or before I go out or to take, take the edge off. It would yeah. just be more, yeah, listen, you know, I'm I'm going out with friends. I'm going to have a, a drink. It's I'm going to have a good time, and this alcohol is going to make sure I have more of a good time. Right. So I never really kind of got the concept of people going, um, I'm going to get blotto. I'm like, why would you drink so much you can't remember what happened? Yeah, why, it's what, very... Like, do you hate yourself? What's up with that? It's a very Australian thing. 
it's to drink to obliteration. Mm. Whereas I, I like the European ethos of uh, we're drinking for flavour, uh, the enhancement of a meal or in expectation of a meal or in farewell of a meal. Mm. I prefer to approach it Actually, in, in that you, you and I have got uh, quite recently into an aperitif uh, pretty strongly called the old Aperol Spritz. Yeah, it's... I, I don't... With this seasonal change, we've moved into winter here in Sydney. It's not as applicable. I think it's more of a summer drink, isn't mm. it? Oh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, even even just the uh, the colour. It's um, it's bright, yeah, you know, yeah. orange sunburst. And, um, and we have a happy hour up the road at a very nice Italian restaurant. And uh, in, in summer... Oh, sorry, I should say restaurant... And in summer, when we've been there, it's been Aperol spritzes, a, a perfect way to while away happy hour, mm. uh, which we do post-podcast uh, recording. Here's a question for you. Instead of looking at what's your favourite alcohol, what is the alcohol you loathe the most? I'll go first. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it has to be Johnny Walker, because when I was 16, I became violently ill and oh. threw up in a gutter because of it. So it's Satan's drink, so I don't yeah. ever touch that. Yeah. Um, Having said that, I will have a whiskey, and I'm a big fan of Drambuie, so I haven't gone off the entire genre of yeah. whiskey, but I just, I think uh, Johnny Walker... Because there's a world is, of is, difference between yeah. Johnny Red and a good single malt, isn't there? True, true, true. What was this, uh, as an interesting tangent, what was the Japanese scotch that we Oh, Nika. Nika. I think oh. it's N-I-double-K-A. Well, just to kind of... It could be a good way to close out the episode of... Yeah, well, it's, about. I, I think it's interesting. Like when when you think of watches, for for me and any kind of amateur, you go, okay, Swiss watch, but we forget that it was the English who started watchmaking. So yes, it, yes. It, it was the English and the French and the Germans mm. and the, and the Swiss and, and the Swiss were undercutting. Yeah, at the start and, of the and year. then you you have World War One and World War Two, and as we know, the Swiss are neutral for. Which mm-hmm. is both wildly impressive because they're pacifists, but at the same time, there's a Jewish expression that says um, uh, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in times of crisis, do nothing. So, you know, yes. swings and roundabouts. But the point is, they're neutral. And so, while the, the, the French and the English fighting on the same side and the Germans fighting everybody um, were, were, were terribly uh, busy literally in a world war, the, the Swiss were free to kind of just literally continue um, making watches with literally no competition. Yeah. And before yeah. you know it, you know, you get into today where it's just everyone thinks it's the Swiss. Ah, uh, right, yeah. I see full stop. Mean, yeah. And then it's hard for us to even name a British brand. I mean, we can. Mm. Uh, Fairer, which are fantastic watches. Easier... There's a few um, French brands. I can't actually think of any off the top of my head, but it's the Germans. Baltic, actually, Baltic. Baltic, is nice. They're French. Nice, yes. but it's the um, it's the Germans who really, yeah, they're about ten, maybe ten, fifteen years ago yeah. said, "All right, enough with this Swiss monopoly. Yeah. We have a wonderful reputation and heritage. Um, we need to revive that." And and the wall coming down was also. Uh, instrumental in that the, mm. they were behind the Iron Curtain the Glashuta region uh, but the infrastructure was there, just needed impetus and uh, stimulus financially to get running and then boom, Langer and Zone so mm. The reason I go on that tangent is because you've got, when I think of uh, whiskey, 
you've really only got like kind of what is it three types you've got um scotch whiskey irish whiskey and english whiskey so that's kind of your whiskey and then you kind of jump over and you've got uh, american so, so they've like got their, their their rye whiskey and their bourbon whiskey yeah. so you've really got kind of european and american so it was pretty bold of the japanese to stand up and say well yeah. actually we we love what you're producing we're going to have a crack at the title because it's not simply making an alcohol it's an alcohol that has um, its roots deeply embedded in a culture and in a physical uh, topography. So I've, I've spent a bit of time in Scotland and you, you go to literally a castle and outside the castle is a shop and the shop will have um, two, three, 350 different bottles. And we're not oh. talking different bottles of whiskey, we're talking different brands Bread. of whiskey. Right. To the point where you've got this kind of providence thing going on of like, well, it has to come from this particular place. And then, yeah. then it's it's matured around the the idea of um you know peat bog and peat moss and all that 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 type of um stuff where it's it's a it's a real physical biological yeah, thing. Yeah. So the idea that the the Japanese would step up and say we're going to have a crack seemed a little bit absurd. But if you look at much like them building cars and making watches, yeah. A tremendous ability to study and assimilate and conquer uh, that we see entire and time again. And I enjoyed the, what was the name of it again? That, that Nicker? Nicker. Mm. Had it last week and gee, I was, <laughs> and lucky it was happy hour, it was half price so I could afford it because they don't, the good ones don't come cheap and that's cool. No, they're, um, they're not mucking around but. It's an interesting thing. My my uh, uncle was a scientist with the CSIRO, which is an Australian, I don't even know what it stands for, Centre for Science, Innovation, blah, blah, blah. Research. But anyway, it got a research, a research facility, which is like the the gold standard of um, uh, science in Australia. Hmm. Yeah. Underfunded. Underfunded, absurdly underfunded, because Australians are mind-shreddingly narrow-minded and short-sighted when it comes to innovation. However... Yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're the guys who invented Wi-Fi, but uh, just yeah. casually sold the idea because they're morons. The point yeah. being, CSIRO does fantastic research. And um, my uncle said, what tends to happen is that it's Western countries like Australia and America who are great at the, the R in R&D oh, yeah, research. Yeah, the, and it's the Asians who are great at the D in R&D, which is development. development so, yeah. And he said, it's an attitude towards looking forward not looking back and also attitude towards authority so we have a fairly um maverick rebellious attitude towards authority some mm. an authority in the past has said x we say oh that doesn't that doesn't sound right so yeah. we attack it and look for a different way in asian countries they're far more respectful of that yeah. so what tends to happen is we we generate these amazing advances and in research and new ways of thinking but then Either we've got ADHD or we've got narrow-minded yeah. political overlords and we just don't fund it. So then the Asians come in and they take it and then they refine and refine and iterate and iterate. And before you know it, they've taken a concept and made it um, sheer, unadulterated perfection, mm. which, um, which should be a slap in the face to us and a reminder that we need to focus and get our heads together. Americans just thought, 
why why are we leaving it to the Swiss to monopolize the mechanical automatic market? Why would we leave it to the Asians to monopolize the quartz market? We're America. Mm, we mm. we came up with some brilliant watches. The the Gruen, an American watch, the first watch James Bond ever wore. The um the Timex, one of the you know the original kind of watches from mm. the you know late eighteenth century. Uh, Ball, Ball, etc. etc. So yeah. some fantastic. Um, Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah. I mean Hamilton have just. Um, recently celebrated 100 years of supplying watches to the aviation industry. Oh, They've yeah. really done some cutting-edge stuff. And so I think uh, Fossil, and what's that brand, Shinola? Oh, yeah, Shinola. Yep. Shinola, yeah. Um, have just said, listen, you know, in, in a Trump-esque um, kind of rah-rah Americana, have said, you know what, let's do manufacturing and blue-collar work in our country. Let's be proud of our designs. Mm. And um, and quite frankly, the the fossil I'm wearing is is classy as hell, and uh, some of those Shinola for, for my you know, this this one's a. But you've a, got to respect the getting into the marketplace. I, yeah, I, I yeah. wouldn't. As a watch aficionado, I'd prefer to spend my money in a different place, but I respect their marketing too. Yeah. Their, yeah. The whole package with I believe when you go to their ads the. The whole shop is kitted out to to transport you to another place. Uh, that sort of retro travel uh, aspect they they use in their whole marketing uh, approach apparently is quite impressive. Yeah, no, like the Americans. I, my attitude towards um, the Americans is that sometimes if something's a little bit left of center, they they kind of they're a little standoffish. They observe it, see what other people are doing. Mm. Uh, so, for example, craft beers, you know, um, really kind of took a, a toehold in Australia and Europe. And we kind of, you know, obviously the greatest beer makers of all time are from Belgium. Mm. And the Americans kind of looked at that and thought, no, we're happy with our Bud Light and with our Samuel Adams and our, our Budweiser, mm. which of course. Budweiser is a brand name, but it's a type of beer made, of course, um, in Europe. And they made some fairly average stuff. And Mm. then someone probably, let's be honest, in in Portland, Oregon, got into craft beers. And then it went absolutely ballistic. And now Americans are on the absolute avant-garde of making stuff. We we might have to dedicate an entire podcast to the uh, drinking habits of the of the gentlemen uh, of the world today. Well, speaking of which, I, w- I was going to say when we're talking about you know alcohols you don't like, and you still mm. and you need um, to answer that question. Yes. The one I don't like, which I wish I did like, because it's basically the most badass cocktail. If you order this cocktail, you will look cool. You will have respect. Everyone will go, "You're a gentleman. You're a madman. You've got it going on." But I hate it. The Negroni. <laughs> The Negroni. I hate the Negroni. I know I should love it because it's sophisticated. I just, I think it's absolute rubbish. It's too alcoholic. It's too bitter. I, I think they're. It kills me. Uh, what What are the ingredients? I don't know off the top of my head, but it's it's um. I don't want to know. Well, their their main thing is kind of like that bitter orange. It's I think it's two alcohols chunked together. Maybe something like you know, um, bourbon and bourbon and something. It's it's an it's an odd cocktail which just mixes two things it tastes a little bit like an aperitif yeah it's incredibly strong it's like the first time i had a rusty nail 
which mm. is a cocktail uh, made of Drambuie. And all they do is they literally get Drambuie and another whiskey, or maybe it's vodka, and mix them together. So it's literally just it's two, oh, right. two drinks mixed together. Yeah. And it almost, the back of my head almost yeah, fell off. Yeah, that would be quite potent, you know, deceptive. Oh, it was, a, it was a farce, and I yeah. just thought, you can't just get two strong alcohols and put them together. Put them That's together. not a cocktail. My no. favourite cocktail is a whiskey sour, somewhat ironically, yeah. um, which is they've got... Um, They've got the whiskey, they've got the lime, they've got a little bit of an egg white to give it that kind of silky smooth froth. Mm. And so you're drinking it and you've got the whiskey that punches you in the back of the throat and you've got the sour, which reminds you alive. But then you've got the egg white, the type of silky pillow that an oh. angel would sleep on. Well, uh, to, to answer the question of the drink, and it's probably a good way to end because the dive bezel on the Aura 65 has shown that we're pretty much out of time. Uh, the drink that repulses me is the Galliano Sambuca, <laughs> which again goes back to a, a teenage, teenage session oh dear. that ended in, how can we take this taste out of our mouths whilst we're still drinking it? Uh, have you got any lemons? No, I don't have lemons. I've got some oranges. Right, that'll do. And the night ended with this eating whole oranges without peeling them. <laughs> so you can imagine how which, that... Which pretty much for me tastes like a Negroni. Like, and I've just looked this up because I should know this. Uh, Negroni is super simple. It's just um, uh, dry gin, Campari and sweet vermouth. And um, I, I loathe Campari, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, or having said that, the Aperol Spritz has a little bit has of Campari a, in it. a little bit, yeah, just but, to offset but to offset the sweetness, but then they they mix that with um, is that prosecco or just uh, prosecco? Water? Yeah, prosecco. yeah. So it's yeah. and prosecco is more sweet than sweet, so yeah. it, it's a nice balance. But uh, the Negroni, I I wish I could stomach it, but I got nothing. Yeah, well, yeah. So uh, might have to acclimatize to it. So just to remind people, our email when you can or where you can reach us, man of the world podcast at gmail.com. Uh, music is by the Greg Levine Band. The song is called Springtide and it's available on Sagacious Records. And you've been listening to Man of the World with Neil Levine and Nick Harding, uh, sponsored by Galway Port. Not sponsored, but uh, fueled by Galway Port. So uh, thanks, boys. Thanks. We'll, we'll see you next time.